You are listening to New Life the Fort. We pray that this season, you take possession of every good gift God has prepared for you. Well, I've been, as uh, Pastor Mitch said, we have been um, here. This is now my fifth visit with you, and you, you are my favorite church, I think, in the, in the Philippines. But um, we, we came last week for Jesus Festival. How many of you were at Jesus Festival last week? And I said, wow. And a uh, big thank you to all our volunteers, uh, 300 volunteers at Jesus Festival this year. So that was wonderful. And we got to, I got to speak there with the youth and the young adults. That was a lot of fun. We laid hands on about 400 youth or young adults. It was a lot of fun. And uh, did a session there. And then I went to uh, Pastor Etienne's church on Sunday at Quezon City at Trinoma, and uh, I think he's also been here before. He did six services here with you and got a T-shirt like I have in Australia. Mine is too small for me. It doesn't fit me, but that's only because I'm still big from Christmas. So uh, we, we uh, Pastor Etienne, and uh, I went shopping at Trinoma. I uh, enjoy going to Folded and Hung when I am here in, do you like this? This is folded Filipino clothing. Yes, I take this home with me. I need some more preaching shirts because I preach so many times when I am here. I do get hot sometimes too. It's hot. In, in Australia, we have four seasons. Summer, winter, autumn, and spring. In Philippines, you have four seasons. Hot and very hot. <laughs> wet and very wet. And I think already we have had all four seasons here in Manila. And then on uh, Wednesday, I went with Pastors Josel and Mylene to Davao City in Mindanao. We had a couple of hundred pastors there for two days, travel all over Mindanao to come. Some drove 14 hours to come and be with us. And we had a wonderful time in Davao. The whole city smells like durian. Very nice. Uh, so we went to Davao and then we came back yesterday just so we could be with you today. So we are having a wonderful time and uh, we're going to have a great afternoon today as we come to the Word of God. How many of you are grateful for the Scriptures? Yes, we have the Word of God. It's good to have it on paper, but it is even better to have it in our hearts. So today I hope that we can learn something together. I'm going to share a truth today. I'll read one verse, then I'll share a story, a context, and then I'll finish by giving you three points. Because whilst I have four children now, I still am a three-point preacher. So that's still my, my model that I use. All right. So let's turn to John chapter 4, and I'll read verse 23. It is Jesus speaking, uh, and Jesus spoke in red. In my Bible, he speaks in red. All right, Jesus says, Yet a time is coming and has now come when the true worshippers, verse 23, when the true worshippers will worship the Father in spirit and truth, for they are the kind of worshippers the Father seeks. Um, say... True worshippers. Say spirit and truth. I don't believe that spirit and truth are two different worships. Um, if I was to have a big day preaching, six services, woof, and I go back to my hotel and my wife says, You look sore. Number one, you should have a massage. But in Australia, the other thing we do is we have a bath in water and salt. So we have salt, we, water and salt. Do you do that here? No. Oh. Then this illustration may not work. But my wife might say, she had, Chad, go have a bath in water and salt. Now, when she says that, she is not telling me to have two baths. A bath in water, and then I let all the water out, and then I fill it with salt, and have a bath in salt. No, not two baths. Bath in water and salt is one bath. We're water and salt together. Spirit and truth is not two worship. 
We do not worship in spirit on Sunday and then Monday in truth. I, I like church where we worship in truth, but my wife likes church in spirit. No, 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 no. Spirit and truth is the worship. Together we worship in spirit and truth. And he says, for these are the type of worshipers my father seeks. God is seeking for something. He is looking for something. And that something is not a thing. It is a person. God is seeking not for worship. God is seeking for worshipers. He is looking. When you read the Greek and you study this word searching, it is used over 100 times in the New Testament for searching. It means to eagerly look for, eagerly look and desire in your heart. I'm eagerly looking for something. Like the woman that lost a coin and she eagerly searched the house for it. She wanted that coin. But every time this word is used, it is only twice used speaking of God searching for something. When God searches, when he's eagerly looking for something, John 8 verse 50, Jesus says, I do not seek my own glory, but God is seeking to bring me glory. God is looking, is desirous that Jesus' name is glorified. And here in this verse, we've read the same thing. God is seeking for people to worship in spirit and truth. He is seeking worshipers. God is eagerly looking for worshipers who will bring glory to the name of his son. That is why you support Jesus Festival every year. Because the goal, the object, the purpose of Jesus Festival is to make Jesus' name high and to bring glory to his name. It is not called New Life the Fort Festival. Because whilst it is good for New Life the Fort to have a good name, God does want to make our name great. That is what he said to Abraham. I will make your name great. That's God's job. Our job is to make Jesus' name great. And God is seeking for those who will worship in spirit and truth, who, like the Father, want to bring glory to Jesus' name. Amen. So God is seeking for worshippers. I want to now have a look at this story in its context. Many of us know John chapter 4, we will read in a moment, is the story of a woman at a well in a city called Samaria. And Jesus says this truth to her. But it is very important to preach for teachers, not just to preach one verse. We like to look at the context of the scripture. It is same for you when you read your Bible at home. Don't just flick through and look for one verse. Now, God can use one verse for you. But in order to renew your mind, it is important for you to read the whole scripture together. I encourage pastors in Davao this week. I said, don't just do preaching on a topic. That is important because it helps communicate one thing. Generosity. Do a series on that. Expansion. Do a series on that. Whatever God is laying on the pastor's heart, yes, it is good to do a series. But I also encourage them, do a series on a book of the Bible. Because then your people get to learn how to read the Scripture properly and not just pick their favorite bits. Like a meal, we want our children to eat the whole meal we have for them, not just pick the sweets. Sweets are good, but we want them to eat all the meat and the vegetables and the rice. Amen. So we eat the whole meal. So it's also good for us to do that. When we read the Bible, read it in its context. Amen. So that's what I'd like to do. I'd like to read John 4, look at the context, teach you some history so you understand in your head the story better. But more than minister to your head, I trust today ministers to your heart and that you leave with something practical to do with your hands. Because we need to think well, but it's also God is concerned about the desires of our heart, our will, and that we practically work that out in real life. Amen? So let's turn to verse 1 of chapter 4, and we will read the story of the woman at the well. 
Amen. First one. Sometimes I get distracted. No one here gets distracted, do you? Just me. Are you with me? Are you excited today? Do you, we understand what a privilege it is to have the scripture. This is not just a book. It is history, but it's not just history. His words are spirit and life. Are you ready to receive life today? Why don't you put your hand on your heart? Say, Holy Spirit, you are my teacher. Thank you for your word. I am listening to you today. Speak, Lord, in Jesus' name. I expect you to minister to my heart and my head in Jesus' name. Come on, say big amen. Amen. All right, verse 1. The Pharisees, now Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard he was gaining and baptizing more disciples than John, although it was in fact not Jesus who baptized, but it was his disciples. So he left Judea and went back once more to Galilee. Verse 4. Now, he had to go through Samaria. One of the things I encourage my church to do when they read the Bible, is to look at the maps as well. In my Bible, I have some maps in the back. If you read an electronic Bible, then you can go to Google and you can Google the map because it just helps you to understand what you are reading. So Jesus, or you go on a trip to Israel with pastors at some time. And then you can see these places for yourself. They look very different today, but still, you can see these places. So, we understand. Jesus was ministering in Judea, and the capital of Judea is Jerusalem. And that is down south. But he wanted to travel north to Galilee, where he came from. Jesus was from Nazareth in Galilee. And in between Judea, the province of Judea, And the province of Galilee, there was a place called Samaria. And Jesus, it says in John, Jesus had to go through Samaria. But what is interesting to me is this. Jesus did not have to go through Samaria. It was not the only way. In fact, many people from Judea went east and avoided Samaria. Or they went west and avoided going through Samaria because they did not like the Samaritans. So when it says Jesus had to go through Samaria, it's not talking about him physically having to go. He had other options. It was 100 kilometers from Jerusalem to Galilee, And he could have gone on the outside and avoided Samaria like many people in Judea did. So it is not he had to physically go through Samaria. This word is talking about an internal conviction. He had to go through Samaria because he knew his father had something for him to do there. It was not a decision of convenience. It was a decision of conviction. I have to go. But Jesus, we don't want to go through Samaria. Let's go this way. No, 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 no. I have to. I must. There is something there for me to do. Amen. And now we see why. Verse 5. So he came to a town in Samaria called Sychar, near the plot of ground Jacob had given to Joseph. Jacob's well was there, and Jesus, tired as he was from the journey, sat down by the well. It was about noon. When a Samaritan woman came to draw water, Jesus said to her, Will you please give me a drink? His disciples had gone into the town to Jollibee. They were very hungry. The Samaritan woman said to him, You are a Jew and I'm a Samaritan and a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink? For Jews do not associate with Samaritans. The Greek there can also mean Jews do not use the same plates, do not share dishes with Samaritans. These, the Jewish people, particularly from Judea and the Samaritans, had a long 
history of not liking one another. It is almost 1,000 years of history where they used to fight with one another. And you understand that history if you read the Old Testament. Are you ready for a little bit of history today? You are history students. If you read the scripture in Genesis, we begin the story of God's people, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and his sons. This is a family led by fathers. Once we come to Exodus, Moses leads God's people out. And this is now after 430 years. They are no longer just a family. They are a nation. And they are a nation that are given a law and a nation that are led by judges and prophets. So you read now the book of Joshua and Judges and Ruth and Samuel. And you see this nation of people led by leaders who take them into the promised land to take it. In fact, they don't just take the promised land. They are called to possess it. It is their year of possession. It's not just good enough for God's people to have a promise. They need to take hold of it and possess it. I press on toward the goal to take hold of all that he has taken hold of me for. New Life the Fort, this is your time of possession. And God has given you leaders like he gave to the nation of Israel who will help lead you to that promised land to say, this is how we go. Now everyone come on board. We don't want to leave anyone behind as we step into the promised land. Amen? And there might be giants in the land. The promised land was called the land of milk and honey, which sounds very nice. But where you have milk, you have bulls. Big bull cows, bulls. And where you have honey, you have bees. So where there is milk and honey, there are also bulls and bees. There are also challenges in the promised land. There are challenges, but our God is greater than any enemy and any obstacle and any challenge. Amen? No matter what challenge there is, our God is greater and He is on our side. That's why when the, when the spies came back from the promised land to Moses, two of them said, yes, there are giants. There are challenges ahead of us, but we can do it because God is with us. We can surely do it. That is the language of faith, of saying we can do it. The argument in that story was not whether God could do it. They all knew God could do it. The argument was, can we do it? And Caleb and Joshua said, we can do it and we should do it. We should go. Many people know what we should do. Oh, we should, we should, we should. But Caleb and Joshua said, we can, we should, we must. For the glory of God's name, we must do this. Hey, are are you a people of conviction? Has God given New Life the Fort good promises? A good promised land. This is our year of possession. Crossing the Jordan, leaving the old behind and saying we will walk on towards His promises. Amen? And that's why your prayer meetings this week, this week, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, are important because it is you calling on God and aligning your hearts with what He is saying to agree with heaven that we are possessing the promised land. You are no longer just a small family. You, have, you are a family and you have fathers, but you are a big family that needs a big promised land. And it is your time to move into and possess that land. Amen. I told you I got distracted. Point is, the nation moves in to the promised land. And as they grow and increase, they take possession of more and more promises. And then it comes to the time of David, Saul, David and Solomon, where the family becomes a nation 
then becomes a kingdom and they have kings ruling them. And through that era, they were bigger and more prosperous than they had ever been because they obeyed the Lord. However, at Mount Sinai, God said to them, if you don't obey me, I will become your enemy. When I was here the first time, I explained that covenant. And I, I explain it in my book, He Qualifies You. Important to see. It is not a covenant that we are in. God will not be your enemy. God is never against you. He is always for you. He may not agree with all your decisions, but He still loves you as a person. And He is always there even when you do wrong. But in the old covenant, He said, if you do wrong, I will go against you. And so even though David and Solomon led well for a time, after a while the people rebelled and the united kingdom of Israel was split. Ten tribes stayed north and they said to the two tribes in Jerusalem, in Judea, down south, they said, we don't want to have anything to do with you anymore. We are not part of your family. We do, we do not want to have anything to do with David, anything to do with Solomon. We are separate from you. And God's nation was divided. Very sad. The people up north built their own temples because they did not want the, uh, to, their people to go down south to Jerusalem anymore. Because they said, we, we're not related to them now. We are split from them. So they built their own temples and had their own king. One of their kings, became well, his name was Ahab. He married a woman called Jezebel. And in the time of Ahab, he made the capital city of the ten tribes. He made the capital city Samaria. You can see, remember, I'm talking about Samaria. He made the capital city Samaria and they worshipped the Baals there. That is when, you remember the story of Elijah, when he called down fire? It was in that time, okay? In that period of time. That is why when you read the book of Kings, sometimes it can be confusing because God is saying, this man was king in Israel and this man was king in Judah. This man was king in Israel and this man was king in Judah. It's because the kingdom had been split. Okay? It's the divided kingdom. The first king up here in the north was from the tribe of Ephraim. Which is why when sometimes when you read the prophets, they say they prophesy to Judah and then they prophesy to Ephraim. It's a nickname for the north. So the Bible is easy to understand if you... Research a little bit or just familiarize yourself. Sometimes it can be difficult, but that's why we have one another, to learn from teachers, yes, to learn from one another. So you read the prophets and they talk about Judah and Israel or Judah and Ephraim. Anyway, the point is the people in Samaria worship false gods. About 200 years later, they are taken over by a foreign nation called Assyria. And Assyria come from the north and they come and they conquer the promised land. They conquer the northern tribes and they take them away. So that the cities were not left empty, the king of Assyria brings in five foreigners, five foreign ethnic groups to live there. Five foreign nations who are living in what was the promised land. This is a sad time in the history of God's people. Foreigners are now living back in the promised land, five groups of them. And each of those five foreign groups had their own God that they worshipped. You can read about this in 2 Kings 17. It gives a really good summary of the history of this period. 2 Kings 17. He brings five groups of people who all worship their own gods. And because they are worshipping foreign gods in Jehovah's land, a very strange thing happens. Lions start to come out and attack people every day in the newspaper and on the news and on Facebook. Maybe not Facebook. They are stories of lions attacking people. So these five nations living there say, hold on. 
Maybe we should worship the God who owns this land. So they go back to Assyria and they say, send us one of the priests that you took away so he can teach us to worship the God Yahweh. So a priest comes who's not a real priest, not a Levite. They're not part of God's community anymore. But a priest comes and says, this is how you worship Jehovah. They had five gods they were in covenant with. And they started to worship Jehovah, although they weren't his covenant people. That is the history. And over the time, the people in Judah and Jerusalem looked at these people in Samaria. They hated their ugly cousins, who used, like Ahab, who used to worship Baal. And now the people living there are not even from Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. So they despise Samaria. And there is hundreds and hundreds of years of conflict between the south and the north. So that by the time of Jesus, strict Jews would not even walk through Samaria. They would go around the long way. So as to not be defiled by them. Which made it incredible when Jesus tells a parable about a man who was robbed on a road. And priests walked by him and ignored him. Levites walked by and ignored him. But then a Samaritan came. One of these terrible, inbred, false god, worshipping squatters on the promised land. Those people that we hate. One of them walked by the man and helped him. That must have been so offensive when Jesus told that story to his people. (gasps) What? A Samaritan is acting like a good neighbor? One day, Jesus went through Samaria, but the people in the hotels and Airbnb in Samaria, they would not let him stay because he was Jewish. You're not allowed to stay. And Peter and John were with him and his friends were there. And they said, Jesus! They cannot treat you like this. We should call down fire and burn them like Elijah did when he was in Samaria. You remember? Elijah called down fire. Let's burn them. And Jesus said, no, I don't operate like that because I have a plan for these people. Later, Jesus had to go through Samaria and he met this woman. So that is some of the history. Okay, you understand a bit better now? That is the context for this story. What verse are we up to? Verse 10? Yes? Jews do not associate with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that asked you for a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. Sir, the woman said, You have not nothing to draw with, and the well is deep. Where are you going to get water from? Are you greater than our father Jacob who gave us the well and drank from it himself as also did his sons and his livestock? Jesus answered, everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again. But he who drinks the water I give him will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give will remain in them a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said, sir, I want this water too so that I won't get thirsty and have to keep coming here to draw water. How many of you know that Jesus is trying to speak of something spiritual, but all she can think of is natural? Jesus always had this problem. In the chapter before this, he was in Jerusalem, in Judea, and he said to a man, you must be born again. He was a Jewish leader, Nicodemus. And Nicodemus could not understand how you could get back into his mother's womb. And Jesus said, come on. You're only thinking physical. I'm talking about something spiritual. Many times people misunderstand Jesus because he was saying something spiritual. That's why we need spiritual ears. The same thing is happening here. Anyway, he says to her, Okay, look, if you want some water, I'll give you some. But I'm not going to give you any without your husband knowing. Because that wouldn't be culturally acceptable. So go get your husband and tell him to come back with you I have no husband she replied Jesus said to her I know that's right 
you are right when you say you have no husband. In fact, you've had five husbands and the man you have now is not your husband. What you have just said is quite true. Now, here is my belief. I believe that this, this is true, what Jesus said to this lady, that physically, in the natural, it was true. She'd been married five times, which means that five men had found her unsatisfactory. Because in those days, it was very rare for a lady to divorce the husband. It was almost always the man who found the woman unsatisfactory and sent her away. Five times, married, sent away. Married, not good enough. Married, not good enough. Isn't that terrible? Now she's living with a man that's not her husband and Jesus comes along and offers her a life beyond this one. He accepts her as she is. Not only is he talking with a Samaritan, not only is he talking with a woman, but he is talking with someone that other people have rejected and think lowly of. Jesus sees your value. No matter how many people have rejected you, no matter culturally how many people don't want to speak with you, for whatever reason, Jesus sees your worth. And he chose to speak to this woman. He had to go through Samaria, so that he could see her. Wow. But I also believe there is a spiritual level to this story. This woman had five husbands and was with a man that she was not in covenant with. The people in Samaria, remember, had, were five nations that lived there. They worshipped five gods. They were in covenant with five gods. And then they worshipped Jehovah, but they were not in covenant with him. Yeah. So Samaria had covenanted with five gods, were now not in covenant with Jehovah, were in a de facto relationship with him, or tried to be. Then Jesus comes as man number seven, as God number seven. To say, I'm here to make a covenant of perfect peace with you. Wow. Amen? Amen? Let's keep reading. Sir, I can see that you are a prophet. Our ancestors worshipped on this mountain, but you Jews claim the place where we must worship is in Jerusalem. We're from the north. We built temples up here. But you are from the south and you say we should worship in Jerusalem. Jesus replied, Believe me, a time is coming when you will worship the Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. Wow! That must have surprised her. Because every Jewish man she'd ever met would say, That's right. Jews are correct. We are the right ones. You are wrong. Jerusalem is the place. But Jesus didn't say that. He said, listen, the time is coming where physical location means nothing. Lady, you keep seeing in the physical realm only. I'm trying to show you something spiritual here. Not physical water, eternal water. Not just five times married. I'm saying a spiritual covenant is coming to your people. Not just a physical mountain anymore. It is now a holy mountain, Zion. We read about in the book of Hebrews. The holy Jerusalem that is from heaven, not from earth. He's trying to help them to see the, there was first the physical, then the spiritual. For you Samaritans, worship what you don't know. But we worship who we do know, for salvation is from the Jews. We have the scripture, and the king was gonna, is going to come. Salvation will come from us. You think you're worshipping Jehovah, but you don't know him. You're not in covenant with him. For salvation will come, and wholeness will only come from Judea. Yet a time is coming and has now come when true worshippers worship the Father in spirit and truth. For they are the kind of worshippers the Father seeks. God is spirit. And to worship him, it is a spiritual reality. You worship in spirit and 
truth. Understand? God is spirit, and you are created in His image. You are created and designed to interact with Him and to engage with Him in your spirit. Not just know Him in your head, although it is important to understand truth and to see to understand things, but to know Him in your heart, where you hear the Spirit within you. Romans 8 says, God's Spirit testifies with our spirit that we are His children. I do not understand everything in my head, but I know God is here, and nothing can shake that reality from me. I can have the strongest atheist try to argue me out of my belief in God. And if they are good, they may be able to cause some questions in my head. But no matter how hard they try, they can never shake my spirit. Because God is spirit and he has made us alive and caused us to be born again here. How many of you are glad he has done that for you? Amen. So we respond in the Spirit. Was that helpful? Do you understand some more of that? I hope you leave hungry today to read your Bible again. Hungry again to read not just the New Testament. See, I think you should read the New Testament with your maps. But I also think you should read your New Testament with the Old Yes, because Jesus said to preachers, he said, a good preacher of the kingdom brings out of his storehouse new as well as old. And we will not properly understand what we have in the New Testament unless we first, well, unless we also see the types and the shadows that God communicated for thousands of years beforehand. Amen. So please eat the book. Eat the book. I said in the previous service, I prefer a paper Bible because you cannot get Instagram notifications on this. You cannot get Snapchat alerts or Facebook or messages or phone calls when you read like this. So I like paper Bible where I can flick and turn and read and see. Get into the word, my friends. God is calling you into a year of possession. And it is in here that you see and, and see the faithfulness of God when he makes promises to a group of people. And where you also learn how to cooperate with him. Because God has called you into partnership with his prophetic purposes. There are prophetic purposes and promises, but there is a partnership as we walk with him to take possession. We have a part to play in cooperating with heaven. And this book will help you to see what that looks like. Amen. Amen. And the first, as you keep reading the history, the last of the history books in the Old Testament is Ezra and Nehemiah. You see, after the people in the north were taken away, 140 years later, Jerusalem also was destroyed. And those people in the south were also taken away by Babylon. And they went for 70 years. But God said to them, I will send you back. And after 70 years, in the books of Ezra and Nehemiah, they come back to the city of Jerusalem. But before they rebuild the city, Nehemiah, the first thing they do is rebuild the temple. Because before the wall or the wall in the city is to be built, the first thing that needed to be restored was worship. Worship first. We are a worshiping community. And it is good for us to give ourselves to building projects and to reaching our community. All these things are great, but the reason that you will succeed is because you are, first of all, a worshipping community where everything you do is done as an act of worship to God, that He is worthy. God is seeking worshippers who bring glory to the name of His Son. And that is what happens in the promised land. And on your way to the promised land, worship Him. Amen? 
When the, when the priests in the Old Covenant were to carry the presence of God, you remember the Ark of the Covenant, they were to take six steps. Three, four, five, six. Then they were to put it down and worship. Pick it up. One, two, three. Then put it down and worship. Worship is so important. And you are called to be a worshiping community. I believe you are. Amen? I want to close with three very practical ways that we can worship God that I want you to remember this week. Some of you need to write this down. You'll put, put this on Facebook. You'll put this into your phone. Somehow you'll remember these three main ways that we are called to worship God. Are you ready? Number one, with our heads. Number two, with our hearts. And number three, with our hands. We are to worship God thoughtfully. We are to worship Him passionately. And we are to worship Him practically. We are to worship Him by giving Him our attention. We are to worship Him by giving Him our affection. Heart. And we are to worship Him by giving Him our assets, our abilities. And I want to leave with those three points today. Are you ready? Number one, worship Him by giving Him your attention, by focusing your thoughts on Him. Before the woman poured out the oil, Mary, the story of where she poured out the oil and and wash Jesus' feet? The first time we see Mary is not then. The first time we see her is where she is in her house with Lazarus, her brother, and with Martha, her sister. Martha is doing the dishes. And what is Mary doing? She is sitting at the feet of Jesus, and she is listening to him. She is giving him her attention. Martha was giving attention to many things. In fact, the story says she was distracted. But Mary chose what was greater, which was to give Jesus her full attention. My friends, there are many distractions in life. And there are many things fighting for your attention. God wants you. God desires for you to worship Him by giving Him your attention. He is worthy of it. And not only that, but it is good for you to fix your thoughts on heaven. Not on earthly things, but fix your thoughts above. Isaiah 26 verse 3 says this. In the New Living Translation, please. Isaiah 26 verse 3 in the New Living Translation says something wonderful. Is it behind me? You will keep in perfect peace all who trust in you, whose thoughts are fixed on you. My friends, you can do this wherever you are, in your home, on the train in traffic, on the EDSA. Fix your thoughts on Him. Put the distractions away. Put your phone down. Put Facebook in your pocket. And give Him your thoughts. We sang a song before that said, Love so uncontainable I can hardly speak. Peace so undeniably undeniable I can hardly think. Those lyrics are good and I sing them. But one day in our church, I thought, you know what? Peace so undeniable, I can clearly think. Thinking is not bad. God wants your thoughts. And His peace, He will keep in perfect peace those who think of Him. Peace so undeniable, I can clearly think. Because there is a world that is trying to distract you. God wants your attention. 
Number two, God is after your affection, your passion. Worship the Lord with all your heart and soul. David, the King, King David modeled this wonderfully when he danced before the Lord with all his might. He was passionate. Worship is not boring because God is not boring. And he wants your heart to worship him. So extend your affection towards him, your applause, your adoration, and your affection. Turn your heart to him. Worship him with all you've got, with all of your heart, with all of your soul. Psalm, put, Psalm 28 puts it this way. It says, the Lord is my strength and shield. My heart trusts in him and he helps me. My heart leaps for joy. That sounds emotional, doesn't it? My heart leaps for joy. I've put my thoughts on him and now my heart is following because I've remembered how great he is. Sometimes I do not feel like worshipping with joy because I do not feel joy. But joy, the emotion will follow if you fix your thoughts on him and you remember his goodness. You thank him for what he has done and the emotion will flow. Come on, we do not need to come to church on a Sunday to the 1 p.m. service and wait for the worship team to get us emotional. We come having thought of him on the way here. Our thoughts are fixed on him in the, in the, in the bus, on the train as we walked into Market Market. We come in here and we're already excited because all of us are the worship team. We've all come to worship him with all of our hearts. Amen. Come on. Worship teams are not cheerleaders to say, come on, everybody, wake up and worship. No, we leave from here. We say, come on, worship team. Come on, worship team. We're all passionate already. We worship him with all of our heart. Amen. Remember, Jesus offered this woman water that would be within them, a spring that comes out. Every time we gather together here at this cinema, everyone brings a spring with them that flows to become a mighty river. Come on. Allow that life to come out of you as you worship Him with your passion. And lastly, worship Him with your hands, with your assets and your abilities. When this lady poured oil onto Jesus' feet to worship Him, she did it because she gave Him her full attention. She gave Him all her affection, her heart. But she also worshipped Him with her assets with an expensive jar that cost her money. It cost her something. And Jesus said, your story will be told all over the world because this is what true worship looks like. Attention, affection and assets. And today we fulfill that prophecy of Jesus. Today, this lady's story is told. She worshipped Jesus with ex her expense because that's what mattered to her practically. My friends, we do not just give Him our attention. We do not just sing songs on a Sunday with our affection. We worship Him where the rubber hits the road, is what we say in Australia, where it matters. Our wallets, our pesos belong to Him. We worship Him with our assets. We worship Him with our abilities. We put our hands to work to serve Him and to honour His name. There are volunteers. The only, Jesus' name was lifted up at Jesus' festival last weekend. And it wasn't because we had good speakers from around the world. It was because there was 300 volunteers that put their hands to work to see that event take place. This church brings glory to Jesus' name when people say we are worshipping God with our hands, when we serve in children's ministry, when we serve in the media, when we are, the offering comes and we serve God with our assets because He is worthy. We do not just do these things to meet practical needs. As we do something practical, it is actually deeply spiritual. Paul says that in Philippians 4 verse 18. Talking about giving finances. He says the finances are a fragrant offering, an acceptable sacrifice, pleasing to God. When we take our envelopes and we put them above our heads, we are not just thinking of the, what is happening practically, although that is good. We are saying, Lord, this is a worship to you. This is a fragrant offering. Somehow, this, what I'm doing physically, is actually very spiritual. 
It is my worship to you. Amen? Amen. We worship Him with our attention, with our affection, and with our assets and responsibilities. And we do this knowing all the time that worship is a response because He has loved us first. God has not worshipped us, but He has given us His attention. Before you ever thought of God, God thought of you. You are on His mind. Before you ever felt any love toward Him, He loved you. Those on the fourth floor, God loves you. And His affection is towards you. Even those on the fourth floor and and here in this room, why don't you put your hand on your heart. Father, I thank you. You love me. You love me. Father, I pray that the presence of Holy Spirit, Romans 5 says that you pour out your Spirit into our hearts. May we encounter the feeling of your love today. That before we ever loved you, you loved us and gave us your affection. You gave us your attention. You gave us your affection. And you also so loved the world that you gave the greatest asset that heaven could ever have. You gave your own son. You gave your best for us. You gave your firstborn the most precious thing to you. And Lord, our worship is a response, giving you our best in our assets and our abilities, giving you first place in our hearts and giving you our thoughts. We respond to you today in Jesus' name. We thank you for your deep love toward us. Thank you for listening. For more information, follow us on social media or visit us at newlifethefort.com.